hey everyone. Welcome to episode 163 of F-Stop Collaborate and Listen. This week's episode features a landscape and architecture photographer living in Orange County, California. Nick Carver has been entrenched in photography since 2006 when he dove headfirst into the business side of photography where he was met with many challenges. Nick almost gave up after several years of teaching for people on Craigslist until he made some difficult realizations about his work. Nick and I had a wonderful conversation and we covered some really fun topics including his beginnings in photography, how he transitioned into architecture photography to make money, how he looked at his work and made some painful realizations that almost caused him to quit, his path of soul searching and why he actually makes photographs, the resurgence in film photography, his YouTube channel, which I think is highly entertaining, and much more. Over on Patreon this week, Nick and I talk all about the nuances of website portfolio design and his unique approach to showcasing his work. All right. Well, real quick, back in April, I had the amazing opportunity to host some panel discussions and teach my approach to star trail photography at the Out of Chicago Live online photography conference. It was absolutely incredible how well it went and the amount of content that was presented and made available to attendees for the $300 price tag was mind-blowing. Well, great news. For a limited time, you too can get access to over 100 recorded sessions from the conference. Learn and be inspired as, as you watch and listen to the pros when you purchase access to this special collection of recordings from this epic three-day event. Your access includes over 150 hours of recorded presentations, tutorials, panel discussions, and group image reviews, covering everything from post-processing tips to pushing your creativity on a wide range of photography genres, including landscape, nature, travel, street, architecture, post-processing, and more. Plus, don't miss an unforgettable keynote address by Brian Peterson. It was really cool. All right, well, with this set of online recordings, you can fill your year by gaining valuable photography insight from over 70 world-class photographers, including many former guests of the podcast, including Anne Belmont, Charlotte Gibb, Alan Ross, Sarah Marino, Alex Noriega, Jack Curran, Michael Shanebloom, Francesco Gola, Albert Dross, Sean Bagshaw, Nick Page, William Neal, Michael Fry, the list goes on and on. Just head over to outofchicago.com slash live or go to our show notes to learn more and to gain access to this amazing content. Okay, let's get to the show. Awesome. Well, Nick Carver, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. It's a pleasure. I really enjoy uh, your YouTube videos. I think they're a lot of fun and it really transports people to those locations and shows kind of the the workflow that you have to go through as, as a film photographer. <laughs> thanks. Yeah, it's, uh, it can be a lot of work sometimes. It's even more work when you're trying to operate a video camera while doing all of it <laughs> end up making yeah. more mistakes than I probably would otherwise. Yeah, it was funny. I was watching the video you did that's kind of on your homepage and you almost fell off the mountain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I got to be extra careful. It's uh, it's easy to get distracted and kind of get more concentrated on the uh, the video 
part of it than the photos, but really the, the photos are the important part. I should probably, if I was smart, I probably wouldn't do YouTube videos, to be honest, but when, if the photos were really the only thing I cared about, but it's so fun making the videos and seeing people's reaction to them that I just can't, can't stop really. Yeah. Well, I definitely want to talk more about uh, your YouTube process and why you got into that a little bit later, but maybe just to start out, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm a working photographer based in Orange County, California, um, and I do primarily architectural photography. That's how I make my income. And uh, I've been doing photography since about the year 2000. I was introduced to it in a middle school class and then wanted to be a landscape photographer professionally for some time, and that didn't really work out. Um, and it's kind of morphed over the years. I taught for quite some time and now I'm doing architectural photography is my main, my main thing. And then the YouTube stuff is more of a, a fun kind of side project, I guess, that kind of feeds the, the passion side of my photography um, while I'm in between uh, jobs where I'm out photographing some building and God knows where. <laughs> and when you're doing the, uh, the architecture uh, photography, are you doing that all on film? No, the professional work I do is all digital. Um, I do, the architectural work I do is actually for uh, commercial real estate. So it's like um, office buildings, industrial buildings, that kind of thing, uh, when they go to sell the property. And, you know, you're dealing with very, very big um, price tags and very high pressure sales companies. So they always want it yesterday and they want it uh, done, you know, as quickly as possible. So film is uh, not really an option. <laughs> <laughs> how did how in the heck did you get into doing huge architecture project photography um i was so i have to give a little history on a kind of how my career went i guess um yeah so like i said i, I always wanted to be a, a landscape photographer and that's that was kind of the the path i took in the very beginning and uh, i didn't really know at the time but landscape photographer is not a very stable career path. It's not exactly um, a highly in-demand uh, avenue as a professional photographer. So I kind of had to find other ways to make money when that wasn't really working out. So I started teaching photography uh, and I was teaching private lessons and group classes and field workshops and all that kind of stuff kind of centered around landscape photography. Uh, and I eventually just got kind of burned out on that. This is probably maybe five, six years ago. And I felt like I was never really taking pictures because I was spending so much time teaching people how to take pictures that I just ended up not uh, really having enough time left over or energy left over, to be honest, to go out and take my own, my own photos. And it uh, felt like I needed to get more picture taking into my life. Uh, so I was trying to figure out, you know, what could I do in a professional capacity that would involve taking more photos that wasn't something I absolutely dreaded because man, like photographing headshots or photographing a wedding or, or photographing, you know, family portraits, I would try and do that every once in a while. And I, I literally got to a point where I wrote like in big Sharpie on a post-it, don't accept any more portrait jobs. And I <laughs> put that like on my computer because every time I would, I would finish the job and I'd come back and I'd be like, I hate doing that. <laughs> like, and it, it was never the people. They were nice and it was fine and all that kind of stuff. I just have the wrong personality for it. And I hated going through the photos and I hated photographing people. So I kind of ruled that out after, you know, uh, a dozen attempts of trying to, trying to like it. So I was trying to figure out, okay, well, what's something I could shoot that's kind of similar to landscape photography in terms of, you know, matching my temperament. And architectural photography was, was the obvious uh, choice there. 
Um, so luckily, I've been going to the same photo lab since I was like 13, since I started in photography. And yeah. so I, I know the manager uh, quite well. And I just told him, I'm like, hey, if you know any architectural photographers looking for, you know, a second shooter or an assistant or someone just to uh, take some extra work off their hands if they're overloaded, just, you know, keep me in mind. And coincidentally, right around that same time, probably the same week or month, uh, this architectural photographer based in Orange County was telling him too, hey, if you know any shooters who are looking for some work, I'm a little overloaded and I need another shooter. So it was kind of serendipity. And uh, he he hooked us up and I've been working with him ever since. And we're basically partners in uh, what was originally his business now. So I actually do the majority of the shooting and he does a lot of the client relations. So um, oh, kind of owed nice. all to him in terms of getting the business set up, but uh, I was lucky to know the right people, I guess. Well, and it sounds like he's taking care of all this stuff that most photographers hate to deal with. <laughs> Dude, that is the best part about it. Like it's, I can't tell you enough because I've, I have some of my own, clients as well. So I, I, but not nearly as much. Um, and so I get a, a flavor of having to deal with the clients and the back and forth and the emails and the send in quotes and the complaints and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, every time I deal with that, I'm like, I'm so glad I have this other guy to deal with that kind of stuff. Cause <laughs> it is, it's very time consuming and you have to have a certain personality type that deals with that stuff really well. And I can up to a point, but then I just like, I eventually just want to throw my hands up and be like, it's not worth it. I'm walking away. But like, <laughs> he deals with all that stuff. So I get to just be like, uh, I literally get an address. Um, here's the property. Show up at this time. Meet with this contact. Photograph the building. I'm basically left alone. And then I, I send the the photos and just everything else is taken care of. So it's a really good, good setup for me. I'm, I'm glad I kind of fell into it. Um, I was pretty lucky in that sense. And are you finding that... Uh that there's still plenty of business out there, especially right now during uh, COVID? Yeah, it's. Um, I, I'm lucky enough to still be working. I'm really grateful for that because uh, um, I'm, I'm the only source of income in my house right now. And, uh, you know, so many people are just completely out of work. And I'm probably at about 50 to 60% of normal. Uh, it's uh -huh. definitely dialed back. Uh, like I normally on these properties, I'll shoot a bunch of interior photos and then exterior photos day and dusk and the interior photos have been dialed back a little bit just because of the social social distancing stuff and um sure. businesses being closed so we can't can't charge quite as much and the projects are a little smaller but um man thank god I, i'm able to go out and do a job every now and then i'm actually going going out to do one today so um nice yeah yeah it, it'd be interesting to see what the future holds um the architectural photography that i do uh, which is, you know, for when they're selling buildings and stuff like that, uh, actually does okay in down economies. Um, the guy that I, I work with now, his business was kind of growing its biggest during the 2008 recession hmm. because, <laughs> you know, whether the economy is doing good or bad, the, the people who own these buildings, like I'm talking, these are huge properties that are selling for tens of millions, sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars because they're just, they're so massive. You know, it's a seven story building, office building in, in Orange County that fetches a pretty hefty price tag. So I think the the people and the companies that own these buildings are dealing with such bigger, they're dealing with such a bigger game that like if the economy's down, they need to get rid of properties to invest in other properties. And like they're trying to shift money around and stuff. It's not like business shuts down for them. So it's kind of like these buildings are being bought and sold all the time, regardless of what 
what the economy is doing. What is it? What does it even look like to to photograph a building of that scale? Um, you know, each job's a little different, but um, I kind of there, there's kind of two breeds of architectural photography. Um, mm-hmm. There's like <laughs> the high end stuff that you see in Architectural Digest, uh, the type of stuff that an architect would hire. So like, you know, new construction, new interior design, new remodels. That's very high end stuff where they're probably not taking a ton of photos every day. Um, They're well lit, you know, they're bringing in lighting, they're doing very careful post editing, it's all very high end, high class. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's the other breed, which is what I'm involved in, which is a little more run and gun, it's a little more quick and dirty, because they're not really looking for the most polished thing possible. They're looking for really great uh, photos that can be done in one day. They need a good selection of photos because they're putting this into like a print package, you know, to sell the building. Mm. So if I come back and I'm like, okay, I got one dusk, one dusk shot and uh, three exteriors and I got four good interiors, they'd be like, that, what are we supposed to do with that? That's not... <laughs> Like, that's not going to fill out a package. Like, you got to give us more pictures. So uh, I'll generally send, you know, uh, 40 to 50 proofs um, from a one-day shoot, which for architectural, that's that's quite a bit of photos. So um, I don't have the luxury of doing lighting. That's That would slow me down way too much. So it's all natural light, available light, and then uh, exposure blending on the back end, um, which I'm not crazy about. I don't really like that look, but uh, it's what the, what the client needs. Um, Right. So I'll go out and it's literally not much different than, you know, like a, a landscape shoot that you might do. You know, you go out with a backpack with the lenses you need, a tripod slung over your shoulder. And then I'm just walking around looking for the best angles and at what time with the best light. And mm-hmm. um, and it's, you know, it can be really exhausting if the property is big because you're, you're walking around a lot and you're, <laughs> you're on your feet all day. And, um, you know, it's... uh not always glamorous. It's especially with the summer coming up, I'm out in the heat like all day. And um, the properties, I mean, because again, I'm not doing the high end stuff, which, you know, used to be uh, a point of shame for me, I guess. Like I I I felt like, you know, I wasn't like a real, a real architectural photographer, because I'm not doing like, you know, pre scouting with lights and all that kind of stuff. But um, I eventually made peace with the fact that it's just a, a different, different type. But you know, some of the properties I shoot are pretty dumpy and pretty junky because they're interesting. <laughs> yeah, because they're old. I mean, you know, it's like buildings that get bought and sold. They they're selling old buildings too. They're selling crappy buildings too. Like they, right. And then it's my job to go in and make it look as good as possible, um, which is sometimes very difficult. Because I mean, um, you know, you go into these these buildings that. Uh, there's a lot of businesses there and they've been lived in for a long time. So they are just sometimes a mess and they are tiny and the office has been sectioned off dozens of times over the years. So the offices have gotten smaller and smaller and the mess has gotten bigger and bigger. And I get dropped in there and it's like, make it look good. It's like, (laughs) geez, man. (laughs) Like, you know, those those are the days I really doubt where the path my career took. (laughs) Yeah, I did a... uh... I've done one architecture shoot on a like a four million dollar brand new healthcare building. Mm. That was it was kind of funny because I was actually the the owner representative as well, but I'm I was also the only person that anyone knew that would take pictures of the project. Oh. <laughs> and um, it was actually kind of fun because uh, you know I went in there like in late afternoon and 
did a bunch of exterior shots with a wide angle and then went inside and got all kinds of funky like macro shots of the carpet and uh, you know cool. various in interior things that you know wanted to showcase in terms of the craftsmanship and the final product but you know finding angles and stuff like that was actually kind of kind of tricky <laughs> yeah it's definitely a skill that that's developed i look at my my work from you know 5 years ago when i kind of just started doing architectural stuff and um, i've definitely gotten better at finding that good angle um when you did your project it was all new construction and kind of kind of right. property yeah it's all clean <laughs> that helps man uh, like having to like when you go in in the carpet, you can see the uh, <laughs> the marks where the cubicles used to be on the carpet. Oh, yeah. Like that's, uh, this is going to be a rough one, you know, but <laughs> uh, when you did yours, did you use tilt shift and all that kind of stuff or did you just go out with a wide angle? Uh, actually, I think I only had two lenses with me. I had a 21 millimeter prime and a 55 millimeter prime. Oh, cool. Yeah, that's, yes. that's actually pretty close to, to what I do. I use a 24 tilt shift almost uh -huh. the entire yeah. time and then... Uh, for those little detail, I call them lifestyle shots, but they're they're not lifestyle. They're just detail shots. I use a 50 millimeter 1.8. And like those are my main two yep. lenses I jockey back and forth. And yeah. they eat up I mean, those little detail shots. They're fun to do too. Yeah, definitely. And it, it, it you can make something look good when you have just close up detail. <laughs> oh man, if you, yeah, I'll shoot these ugly, ugly properties. But if I just throw on a 50 and blur out the background as much as possible, it's like instant right. art. Like the, the, yeah. the shallow depth of field is such a cheap trick to be like, oh, wow, so beautiful. And it's like, it's nice having that that little, uh, you know, secret weapon in my back pocket. Absolutely. Well, so you started uh, your career as a photographer in 2006. And I'm curious, kind of what was your plan going into it? And how has the industry shifted since then? Yeah, it was um, it's a, a tale of uh, having no idea what the hell I'm doing. So I ended up <laughs> making every mistake possible. But um, so I, I decided I wanted to be a professional photographer when I was probably like um, 15 or 16, I think. Wow. Um, yeah, I was lucky. I found it really early. I was very, very lucky. Um, so I decided I wanted to do it for a living. And at that time, so that was around, see, that would have been 2000. To 2003, something like that. Um, so around that time, you know, what a professional photographer was is a lot different than it is today. And I, I think um, particularly around that time, it was just about to change dramatically. Uh, and it was kind of just starting, but I didn't know that. So I wanted to be a landscape photographer. That's all I cared about. Or nature photographer. I, I didn't even have it nailed down to landscape. I just wanted to be a nature photographer as if as if that's a job. Um, but at the time, I looked up to photographers like Thomas Mangelson. Um, he used to have galleries uh, in like Santa Barbara and uh, I think La Jolla and stuff like that. And he would sell these prints of like wildlife photos and these big panoramics from Alaska and stuff like that. And um, I really looked up to him and Art Wolf and Galen Rowell and the, these guys that were kind of um, just broad definition nature photographers mm -hmm. and they, they seem to be doing it for a living and what a lot of those guys were doing for income back then was uh stock photography right um and also you know assignments from national geographic or something like that uh and so that's the path I chose to take. Like, oh, I'll be a stock photographer. I'll go out and take a picture of Yosemite and then someone will buy it from me. And um, <laughs> it was such the the naive, young, 16-year-old view of what like business is. Because um, <laughs> what I had, I didn't have any idea at the time that A, stock photography was just about to die. 
um, right. at least in terms of any like real income, because uh, micro stock was just around the corner, and you're you know you're going to be getting twelve cents an image when people buy it. That's not sustainable. Um, so a stock photography was about to die. B digital was just starting to ramp up in a serious way, and so there was going to be this massive influx of, of photographers. So the market was going to get saturated, and I had I had no idea about that. And especially you know the the wedding photography industry getting saturated is one thing, but not everybody wants to shoot wedding photos. That's a brutal business, and it's not really a lot of people's passion. But nature photography is naturally going to get really saturated very fast because people love going out in nature and they love taking pictures and stuff like that. So, you know, I, my idea of taking a picture of Yosemite and selling it, you know, that's that's great if you're Ansel Adams, but if you're Nick Carver, 16-year-old living in Orange County, uh, <laughs> guess what, buddy? No one wants your picture of Yosemite. <laughs> like, I, I had no idea. So I, I was really pursuing that path pretty hard. And in fact, to the point that um, I, uh, I, I ended up graduating high school early. I, I kind of wanted to get out of there. I didn't didn't really like high school all that much. So I graduated high school early. And uh, the plan originally was going to go to was that I was going to go to Brooks Institute, which is a, a now defunct uh, photography school in Santa Barbara. Mm-hmm. And uh, backed out of that last minute, which is another story they had. Uh, they didn't have great job placement, I'll put it that way. Uh, so I backed out of that at the last minute. And then but I still wanted to be a nature photographer. So I basically got a job and then still living at home. I just saved up a bunch of money or felt like a bunch of money at the time. <laughs> uh, right. And, when you're 18, 19 years old, a bunch of money is like two grand. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, man, I saved up two thousand dollars. The world is my oyster. Right. <laughs> like, yeah, it was uh, I saved up as much as I could and I paid off some credit card debts I had and stuff like that. And I was going to and then I, I was going to quit my job and become a professional nature photographer. And uh, my plan was to sell prints, like to sell fine art. Um, and so I learned how to frame. I made my own frames. I learned how to cut mats. I learned how to cut glass. I learned how to do everything involved with making a fine art piece to try and like cut costs down, um, thinking that I'm going to you know, go out and sell these prints. People are going to be lining up for my prints. And uh, <laughs> so I... Uh, I quit the job and then I just started doing photography full time. I was building my website. I was dropping ridiculous amounts of money on Google ads, trying to promote my, uh, my fine art. This was all before Instagram and YouTube and all that kind of stuff. So that wasn't really an avenue. Yeah. What are we talking here? Like 2011, 2010? That would have been, thank you. Uh, well, actually, it would have been around 2006, 2007, because that's okay. when I opened my business. Yeah, so it was quite a while ago. And your um, experience with Google Ads, it sounds like, was not very lucrative. <laughs> ugh, dude, I, I was paying for ads like, hey, come buy my prints. It's like, that. that is not how you sell prints, man. You have to be a name or you got to have the prints in front of people at art festivals. And uh, you also have to, like, I mean, I was, you know... By that time, I was uh, 19, I think. And I didn't know anything about business. I wasn't, I thought I did, you know, like all 19 year olds, you think you know everything. And I, I, right. thought, I thought I had this plan, like, oh, yeah, I got a plan. Uh, yeah, I, I know how much it costs to make these prints. I'm, pre- I'm estimating I'll sell this many that could sustain me. The problem was my estimates were completely off. <laughs> I mean, no one wanted my prints and, and, and I don't have any problems saying that now, but I, I couldn't make peace with that at the time. Like nobody wants your prints, dude. No one knows who you are, first of all. And second of all, my work at the time 
was completely derivative of, of other people's landscape photography. Like I was just doing my best impression of Galen Rowell, or I was doing my best impression of, you know, any big landscape photographer at that time. And doing your best impression of another photographer, why would anyone buy it from you? They'd just buy it from the, the original guy, the, the real deal. So my work wasn't really in demand in the first place, but also I'm, I'm nobody. So the money I had saved up, uh, I burned through so fast. <laughs> and then like on useless, pointless stuff, like buying a bunch of supplies to make frames and prints that never ended up getting made. And like, I'm building up all this stock and storing it in my parents' garage, like thinking I'm going <laughs> to, oh, when the masses come and they're buying my prints, I'll have my supplies ready. And it's like, I uh, wasted a bunch of money on that, wasted a bunch of money on Google ads, which was completely uh, a complete flop. Um, oh, I'm sorry I'm laughing, but it is kind of funny. I would much rather someone laugh from it than it just die in the annals of history <laughs> as some idiot's mistake from when he was 19. <laughs> I, I laugh because I think, um, I don't know, a lot of people I know that are nature photographers, I, I think kind of go through this. Yeah. Um, I know, I know, I... I kind of did the same thing back in like 2010, 2011. Like, oh, I got these sick photos and I'm going to sell them in a gallery and I'm going to make all kinds of money. So I bought all these mats and like bought a mat cutter and and I think I sold one one print in a year. Yeah. <laughs> I sold one print as a one random person. I spent like thousands on Google ads and I sold one $75 print. Real yeah, I think mine that. was to a coworker who felt sorry for me. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's like, oh, well, if you count the prints I sold to my parents, I sold two. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah, I, I think that's common. I, I would imagine it's common for nature photographers because, I mean, that's the dream. I mean, that's the dream job. If you're just taking pictures of things you want to take pictures of and uh, selling them to people, I mean, man, that's you've made it. But the thing I eventually had to make peace with and it took me years to make peace with it, with it. And it was very upsetting to make peace with it, if I'm honest. Um, even the successful guys, even the guys that seem like that's how they're making their living. If you look deeper, they aren't. Like uh, Galen Rowell, when he was alive, he was delivering workshops. That wasn't because he had some big passion for teaching. Um, I've read a lot of his stuff. He, he definitely enjoyed teaching and he felt... Uh, kind of a responsibility to do that. But, you know, Art Wolf and Thomas Mangelson and Galen Rowell, believe me, these guys, if they could just take pictures of what they want and just sell the photos, I'm pretty sure that's that's what they'd be doing. Or, um, you know, they would do workshops in a, on a lighter schedule. You right. Know? But <laughs> they, they are business people. You know, they're smart and they, they realize you have to, they realize what took me many years to realize, which is you have to provide something that people actually want to give you money for. And like, that sounds like the obvious business statement of the century, but that's a tough pill to swallow if you're really trying to, to make your money off of your photography and you want to do it the way you want to do it. And it's just not really what people need or want. It's, it's tough to, to make peace with that. At least it was for me. Um, and so that's actually why I started teaching um, is because the fine art, I, I had burned through all the money I'd saved up and went into a bunch of credit card debt because the I'm stubborn, I'm hard headed. And I was even more so at 19 than I am now. <laughs> and like, so I was like, I am not going back to getting a regular job. I, I 
I worked so hard to quit, quit this job and start my photography career. I am not going back. So I was just like burning up credit card debt, trying to make it happen. And I got to a point where I'm like, I'm going to have to get a job. I'm going to have to get a regular job. This isn't happening. And as a last Hail Mary to try and not have to get a regular, a regular job, I put an ad on Craigslist saying, uh, camera lessons, photography lessons, 50 bucks an hour. And that was, um, at the advice of a, a guy I had, uh, I knew across the country. He told me, he's like, you need money in the door. Just put an ad on Craigslist, do lessons until you can get on your feet. And then so I did that and that just like blew up like I, I was not expecting. And really? Yeah, it was crazy, man. I was delivering lessons, just advertising on Craigslist. And it was like, I got a bite, you know, after the first ad. And then I would kind of post ads every week. And, you know, it's free advertising on Craigslist, which was good. And it just kept growing and growing and growing. I was driving around all over the place, going to people's houses, delivering lessons, meeting them at Starbucks, meeting them at the local community center. And just it got so big that I ended up having to get my own classroom in Tustin, uh, California here. And that was around, um, oh God, I can't remember the year. It was, uh, I think, like eight, coming up on eight years ago. Yeah. Um, and the teaching side was just booming. And it was finally making it so I didn't have to go get a regular job. And although I wasn't making money off of taking pictures, it was at least photography adjacent. And um, that was enough for me. So th that kept growing and growing and then got to a point where it was successful enough that uh, the thought of getting a regular job would have been insane. I would have been taking a pay cut if I did that. So the teaching business really saved me in the sense that um, I didn't give up and, and just walk away. So I'm glad for that, that part of my life. And I still teach a bit, uh, mostly through online courses. But, um, you know, eventually, I got burned out on that, too. So right. that's where the architectural stuff came in. <clears throat> yeah, I think teaching photography, especially basics of photography, I think, could get old real fast. Man, if I could uh, count the number of times I've explained shutter speed to people, and the fact that the F numbers are backwards, like sometimes <laughs> I hear myself saying it to another student and I'm like, I'm literally thinking about something else because I've said it so many times. I don't even have to think about it anymore. <laughs> and it'll dawn on me. I'm like, I wonder how many times I've said these words. Like, yeah, it's crazy. Uh, did you find that uh, teaching photography um, helped or hindered your own photography? That's a real good question. I, I think it helped in my understanding of the concepts because just by having to teach people how to do it you're kind of refreshing your own um understanding of it and if someone wanted to know something i would have to brush up on it and so it would kind of help in that sense mm -hmm. i kind of wonder though if uh you know having teaching is very rewarding and people are very grateful for uh you teaching them something especially when you do something like demystify exposure to them because it's very confusing to people if they try and do it on the YouTube rabbit hole. Like right. it's very hard to wrap your mind around because there's so many just terrible videos out there trying to explain it. Um, so if you demystify that for someone, they're very grateful and they're very thankful. And so I had a lot of that going in my life. I had a lot of people uh, being very appreciative to me and my photography, but it's a bunch of beginners who don't know anything praising my work. Mm. And, and so I don't know if maybe that kept my work from evolving to a better place. Um, because, you know, you feel like you're doing it right. Like, oh, yeah, everyone loves my work. Yeah, it's, everyone loves it. Right. It's like, well, it's like an echo, echo chamber, kind of. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, yeah, everyone loves your work, but really 
it's a bunch of beginners who don't know what they're doing. <laughs> Let them love your work. So maybe maybe you need to keep pushing yourself and keep improving. So that might have been part of it. Um, you know, I, I got stuck in kind of repeating my work, uh, my compositions and everything again and again and again. And that eventually led to a, a pretty, pretty sharp um, uh, slump in my photography career to the point that I felt like giving it up. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if that was kind of the echo chamber effect of like, I didn't really need to, to improve my work because I was getting so much praise for it, um, which praise is good. I mean, it feels good, but I don't know that it really fosters uh, improvement. Yeah, you had mentioned earlier that you kind of realized that I guess it was in 2012, you had reached a low point that you felt like your entire portfolio was derivative and uninspired. And you had to do a lot of soul searching as to why you actually make photographs. And I'm curious, what made you realize that? And what did that process look like? Yeah, that was a rough time. Um, It sounds like hyperbole, but it's really not. My business at the time was, was doing great, but I was considering quitting. Like I was actually looking at job opportunities on UPS and uh, I just was going to be a delivery driver or something stupid, <laughs> you know, not, not that that's stupid. I don't want to disparage UPS drivers, but just something that was completely unrelated to my passion. Um, you know, I just wanted to get some job just so I could leave photography behind because I was so, so burned out um, that I was ready to quit. And uh, I'm, I'm a very, uh, I'm very much a planner. Uh, I try and uh, write everything out and I'm big on lists and plans and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I would sit down and I would try and, you know, write out like, why am I not enjoying this anymore? So I'd write out lists of like the things I don't like about my career, the things I do like about my career and how can I maximize the things I do like and minimize the things I don't like and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, that was all fine. All that planning and everything was fine. But I eventually just realized, you know what, you're repeating yourself. You're you're not putting any real creativity into your work. You're just doing what you know gets a reaction out of people. And you, that's why you don't care about it anymore because you, you're not really pushing yourself. You're not pushing your creativity or anything like that. And my older work, which I don't have on my website anymore, I actually just recently took it down. You could see that. It's just the same composition over and over and over again. It's like a vertical picture, big epic foreground, wide angle, fiery sunset. Is like maximizing epicness um, with like <laughs> these these like easy tricks of like you know fieriest sunset possible, uh, widest angle possible. Find some foreground element that doesn't really have any yes. major meaning to the photo, but just maximize it, get it huge. You know, it's formulaic. Yeah, exactly. Very. It's formulaic. basically all of the covers of the current of of landscape photography magazine right now. Yeah. It's all the same formulate composition of big foreground element, some epic mountain in the distance that's probably been perspective blended in to make it look bigger. And then some crazy, amazing, epic sky that is probably something you only see like once a year. Yeah, exactly. Man. In fact, <laughs> to your point, um, <laughs> the, the older version of that magazine is Outdoor Photographer Magazine. And um, one of my biggest, proudest moments in my entire life was one of my images got on the cover of Outdoor Photographer Magazine. And it was exactly that. Epic foreground, in your face, 16 millimeter vertical, as close to the foreground as possible, uh, fiery colors in the background. Like it was all that, the formula that works for that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, what's funny about that formula is it does work on people. You know, like it, 
it's people look at it and they're like, whoa, that's so cool. And it's like, yeah, it's cool, but it's not really um, there. It's not a deep photo. It's not like, you know, you're not learning anything about the shooter by looking at the work. You're not getting any sort of communication. You're not getting any sort of artistic, um, you know, flair from the photographer. It's just a formula. And a lot of photographers, myself included, just worked off of a formula that was working and it got a reaction and it kept getting a reaction. And so I kept doing it. Yeah. I mean, my own photography, probably 2011 to 2017 was pretty much, I mean, not all that kind of stuff, but a lot of it was that type of, you know, formulaic, how do I, mm, you know, wow people. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. It's addictive. I mean, that kind of why we all take pictures is we want to get a reaction out of people. Um, you know, we want different reactions depending on uh, the type of photographer and, and that kind of thing. But we ultimately want praise for our work and we want people to like our work. So when you find this like this like secret formula of my 16 to 35 set to 16 and vertical and close and it's like, oh, that works every time. It's hard to not not keep pursuing that. Um, but it eventually led to me wanting to completely give up photography because I just wasn't, wasn't pushing myself. Um, but luckily, you know, I kind of figured my, my way out of that. Um, film photography was a massive, uh, part of, uh, pulling me out of that ditch, but also, I I had to ask myself why I take pictures and I had to really self-reflect on like, what am I really trying to do here? Like, why am I doing this versus doing anything else? Um, And whatever those reasons are, I need to get back to that because I'm clearly not doing it for those reasons now. Um, So I actually sat down and I I wrote out the reasons I should take a photo. Like I gave myself three possible reasons I'm allowed to take a photo. If it doesn't (laughs) hit any of these three reasons, I'm not allowed to take the photo. Like I had to, I had to pump my brakes on, on some photos. Cause I, I would go out and like, you know, if I saw the sunset starting to flare up, I would actually get like anxiety. Like I need to get out there. I need to go photograph it. And it's like, dude, you gotta, you gotta pump your brakes. You gotta really ask yourself why you're taking pictures. What are you trying to do here? Uh, so I came up with three reasons. Um, one was, uh, if it's a photo, I feel I've never seen before. And I gotta be honest with myself on that. Um, then I'll take it. So if it's a photo that I feel like hasn't really been done or hasn't been done the way I'm planning on doing it, then I'll do it. That's a good reason to take a photo. Um, if it's, uh, that's reason number one. Reason number two would be if it's just fun to take the photo, then, uh, then I'll do it. So, you know, I'm not completely blocking myself out of taking photos that are fun, but I don't feel like they have, uh, any value. Um, I'll I'll still take it because I mean, you got to, Gotta enjoy yourself. Um, and then the uh, the final reason, well, and this is the most important one, is if I wanted to see it hanging on my own wall, then I would take it. Um, and that was the toughest one to to make peace with because all of the pictures in my portfolio up until that point, I wouldn't hang on my own wall. Um, yeah, they, I don't like vibrant colors on my wall. I, I, I am I like more neutral tones. I like more muted tones. So I wouldn't put these fiery sunsets on my own wall. Not only that, uh, I don't really care about a random rock on a beach with silky water around it you know what I mean like it's not it's not anything that means anything to me so I wouldn't hang it on my own wall so how can I be expecting people other people to hang it on their walls Mm. and so I I would really only let myself take photos if it's something I wanted to see on my own wall purely for the joy of taking it or it's something I've never really seen before Um, and so with those three reasons I'm allowed to take a photo, I would go out and try and abide by those as much as possible. Um, and I've, 
continued to abide by those as much as possible uh, until this day. And it's, it's really helped a lot because um, I, I don't take photos in the hope that it's going to get a reaction out of people. That's not really mm-hmm. the driving force anymore. Of course, I still, you know, in some way hope for that. And that's always nice when I do get a reaction. But um, I don't really let that be the reason anymore. And that's brought a lot of passion and, and care back to my work, um, just making sure I, I go to it with pure intentions. I think what's interesting about those three rules <clears throat> is that any given photographer following those three wor- three rules, they, they may still create that um, scene of the huge foreground element. And, the, yeah. and that's fine, you know? Yeah, and, absolutely. But it was kind of, it's kind of interesting that, that for you, it just didn't, it doesn't check those three boxes for you anymore, which um, I, I appreciate that a lot because I've maybe in the last six months, um, whenever I see those images on Instagram or wherever, I don't, I'm usually just like, eh, there it is again. You know, like um, it doesn't do anything for me anymore. And maybe that's just, uh, it's almost like beauty fatigue. <laughs> You know, yeah. like, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And I, I even had the problem too that was one of my kind of big, um, you know, moments where I realized I was doing something wrong. Is I kind of realized that if I shuffled up my pictures with anyone else's pictures who was doing landscape photography, so like if I just, you know, I don't know if anyone's using Flickr anymore, but Flickr was the thing at the time. So if, if you just shuffled up my pictures with the landscape feed on Flickr, would you be able to pull mine out? Like, would you be able to say, that's a Nick Carver, that's a Nick Carver, that's a Nick Carver? And right. when I was real honest with myself, I was like, no, they look like everybody else. There's, we're all doing the same thing. We're all doing epic foregrounds, vertical uh, beach shots and epic mountains in the back and fiery sunsets. Like my work is not standing out in any way. So um, that's one of the things that made me realize, okay, I'm not really being true to to what I want to create. I'm just trying to create photos that I know people are gonna gonna smash that like button or they're gonna tell me <laughs> it's uh you know it's a good photo. Um and and like you said, you know, the the three reasons that I've come up with for myself, it's not, you know, that it could change over the years for me, but it also it can be applied to anybody. Like I know I'm, I'm sounding very disparaging of this whole epic foreground and fiery sunset thing. Um, but if if that's what you want to hang on your wall, then you should go take pictures just like that. And it's not because you are going to hang it on your wall. It just means you're being true to your own taste and your own artistic voice and all that, you know, the, the creativity inside you, you're being true to it. Um, and I just wasn't because I was taking pictures that I would not hang on my own wall. And how can I possibly ask someone to hang, hang it on their wall if I'm not willing to do it. Um, right. And the more I followed those three rules, it took some time, but the more my work evolved towards something that, um, you know, most photos I take now, I'm genuinely proud of, and I truly don't care if anyone else likes it or not. Um, and that's a good feeling, but it also just keeps, I think, the, uh, the artistic purity a little more pure. You know, one of the things that kind of struck me as you were talking about this is is um, I could imagine that some people listening might be having similar feelings about their own work, but might not necessarily have an idea about how to approach that problem in terms of discovering the types of images that they want to represent their work or that are unique to them or creating a portfolio of images that that really represents you you know what you're passionate about what what advice would you have for people to try to find that yeah um i was actually at a student in a few weeks ago 
private lesson, we were talking about exactly that because he kind of had all the technical stuff down. He just needed help finding his voice. Um, and I mean, first and foremost, to, to anyone who is kind of feeling that itch of like, oh, maybe I'm I'm what he's talking about, or maybe I'm you know I'm not really finding my creative voice, uh, or I'm not being true to my creative self. Uh, I I have major sympathy for people in that position because I was in that position for years, and it sucks, man. And you will hate people who try and call you out on that. Like I remember uh, hearing some National Geographic photographer kind of talking about, you know, this similar stuff. And I was like devastated. I was so mad and like just upset about it. And it was my defensiveness ultimately because I, I knew I was what he was talking about. Um, but my instant reaction was, oh, he's, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He's an idiot and all that kind of stuff. But then eventually I had to make peace with it. So for anyone who's kind of feeling that way, I can understand if you kind of don't like me right now or I sound like, you know... <laughs> I kind of sound like a douchebag or something like I get it. it. It's really hard to hear. And it definitely doesn't apply to everybody. Maybe it doesn't apply to you. So um, I feel for anyone who, who might be going through this or about to go through this. But um, but to answer your question, you know, uh, finding your voice and finding um, what your work really should be. It's a constant journey. I'm by no means there. I don't think I don't think I'll ever be there. But what I encourage people to do who are trying to find find their voices, you really have to photograph things you truly care about. And you have to be trying to communicate something that's uh, actually important to you. And it's not it's not something it could be put into words. It, you, you have to be trying to chase something that can't be put into words. Because after all, why would you be taking photos if you could put it into words? Why wouldn't you just write it down? And so like for me, when I was doing my, my really derivative work with landscape photography, I was always hiding behind this purpose of, oh, I want to take pictures of these beautiful places so that I will inspire other people to go out and appreciate these beautiful places. Like that was my, the, the driving purpose. If I had a mission statement for my photography, that's what it would be. Um, but A, I was able to put it into words. So kind of what's the point of the photos if, if the, the purpose is really that simple. But also, if you really care about protecting nature, you should never take pictures of it. And you should never encourage people to go out to it because nothing destroys nature faster than getting a bunch of people to go out and enjoy it. Um, and that, that's a tough, tough thing to, to say and to make peace with. But I realized like, oh, uh, everyone's posting pictures of Joshua Tree on Instagram. And now they're having to close trails because of overcrowding and people are vandalizing and stuff like that. Like if you really want to protect nature, you, you don't encourage people to go out into nature. But that being said, that I realized that purpose was not really sustainable for one, but also it's it's not, that's nothing coming from as cheesy as it sounds. It's nothing coming from the heart. It's nothing that I'm really um, that passionate about. Of course, I'm very passionate about protecting nature, but taking pretty pictures of nature is not like some deep creative urge, you know, deep in my soul or however, however cheesy you want to get with it. So I had to find like, well, what a, like, what's something that I actually actually want to do that I can't do with words that I can't do any other way that I could only do with photography. And um, around that time, I started looking at a lot of paintings. Uh, and, I, and I would really take note of how a painting made me feel. And every once in a while, I'd come across a painting that like, I would look at it. And I'm like, that's making me feel something, but I don't know what it is. <laughs> and like, it's making me feel something. And I like that it's making me feel this way. But I don't know how to describe it to anybody. And I would actually like try and describe it to you know, my girlfriend at the time or my brother or something and be like, yeah, it's making me, I don't know, man, it's just making me feel something like, and 
I realized that's what I want to do with people. Like I, I want to create images that when people look at it, and of course it's not going to get this reaction from everybody, but I want some people to look at it and just be like, yeah, that's making me feel something. That, that's, that's hitting me in a way that not everything does. Um, and so I started looking more to paintings for inspiration than other photos. And I, I would generally not really look at other photography, and I still don't very much, but I, I look at paintings quite a bit um, for inspiration. Um, and, uh, you know, basically trying to create a vibe, like a, a, an overall sensation in somebody that's not really anything that could be put into words. And, um, you know, I, when I try and tell people like the vibe I'm trying to create, the best I can come up with is like, just put the desert Johnny Cash into a blender. And that's roughly what I'm trying to do here. I, I don't know <laughs> I don't much more than that. Like the desert, palm trees, and Johnny Cash. Like just throw all that into a blender. That's that's what I'm trying to do. Um, <laughs> so I basically just get inspiration from from other places. Uh, anything that made me feel something that I couldn't articulate, that would be the source of inspiration for me. And then I would try and translate that into photos. Um, mm. And that steered me really well. And that's what I try and uh, encourage my students to do when they're trying to to work on their portfolio. Because so often people's portfolio is just, um, you know, it's just pictures of pretty places, or it's pictures of things they, they thought were interesting, which um, is fine. And that's fun. And, you know, that's good to do. But if you're trying to, to really find your voice as a photographer, I, I think you have to reach a little deeper. And, and you have to really take stock of like what inspires you. It's not necessarily going to be photography. Um, the guy I was talking to about this a few weeks ago, the student that came in, um, he was a triathlete. And uh, I just told him right away, I'm like, that's what you got to focus on. You're obviously very passionate about it. You're training super hard for it. You do triathlon after triathlon after triathlon. And I know it seems mundane to you, but I would love to see what you can create from that because that's something you truly care about. And it's something that, um, you know, you would be able to find something in that subject that no one else would see. And so that's probably a, a path to take. And it, when I started talking to him about that, it's like it's the first time it occurred to him. It never even occurred to him to be taking pictures at, at his triathlons and stuff like that. But then he kind of started lighting up like, oh, yeah, this would be cool. And that would be cool and everything. And <laughs> I think it's just striking that thing that you're truly passionate about um, that you want to share with the world that you can't share with words. Yeah. That's, well, that's I like what you that. Take photos for. I like that. I, I wanted to go back to something you said earlier about, um, if you really cared about nature that you don't want to, you shouldn't show your photos to people and encourage them to go outside. And I, we talk a lot about that topic on the podcast because it's something that I'm really passionate about as well in terms of conservation issues and whatnot. But I will say there is kind of a, a flip side to that statement that it's, you can't get people to care about something unless they love it. So it's, it's hard. It's a hard, um, you, you kind of have to do both a little bit, like discourage yeah. people from just randomly going into the outdoors. <laughs> yeah, dude, a hundred percent. Yeah, I'm with you. And that that's the toughest part about it is, and that's the thing that was so upsetting to me is like, well, I really do want to protect these places. And you're right. A, a big part of it is people need to know they exist in the first place and they have to see it in a beautiful way because people care about things they think are beautiful. So we do need landscape photos. We need beautiful landscape photos in, in our culture. Um, and I even run into that problem with like, I'll, I'll go out and photograph, you know, abandoned buildings in the desert and stuff like that. And I largely take pictures of those because, um, well, A, I'd want them hanging on my own wall, but, uh, I don't 
want these things to disappear completely. And I think it's important to, you know, uh, build some, some uh, passion for it by taking pictures of it. But at the same time, the more buildings I go and take pictures of, the more people are going to want to go out and photograph them themselves. And then that's, you know, going to, yeah, it's a catch 22. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then you get the overcrowding you see it, like, you know, Mesa Arch and Zion and all this kind of stuff. And it's great because people care about it enough to go out and see it. But it's also not not great, great for nature. Um, so it's a, it's a fine line to walk. It's tough to, it to figure out like when you've crossed the line, you know. It's so hard, you know, to not show your photos to other people kind of defeats the purpose of taking them some a absolutely. little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I also wanted to go back to something you said earlier, or actually, it's something that well you alluded to earlier, but I saw I saw you say it in one of your YouTube videos, which super resonated for me and like my own process in the field. And uh, <laughs> in your video, you said that you had to quote unquote fight the beast within to chase light and color. And uh, I really got a kick out of that because. I have the exact same reaction when I find myself in oh, those yeah. situations where I'm like, oh, oh my God, the light's going off. I got to go get it something. And, and yeah. then, you know, sometimes you come up with something interesting, but sometimes you don't. And it's, but you don't, if you focus just on those moments, you don't necessarily come away with work that is unique or speaks to other people in a way that you were talking about earlier. So how do you fight that beast? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a, I think every nature photographer is familiar with that. Like when you see the the clouds starting to light up and you see that sunset just turning into those deeper and deeper colors. And it's like, Oh my God, I need my camera. Like you're, you're freaking <laughs> out. Cause you got it. You have to capture it. It's there's never going to be a sunset like this ever again. Um, it's tough to fight that. Uh, the only way I got over that really is just with time. Uh, Cause I, I, one of the things that actually I, I think may, helped me calm down with that is uh, so many of the sunsets I looked back on um, where I was taking pictures, I didn't remember them very well. It was kind of strange. Like I, I, mm. <laughs> I remembered taking pictures and I remember the picture, but I didn't remember being in the moment all that well. And I think I was so sucked up into the camera and the screen and checking the histogram and all this kind of stuff. I was very detached from the moment. But then I had a couple where I was out like camping or something like that. And I didn't take pictures because maybe I didn't have my camera with me or I didn't feel like it. And it was beautiful. And I literally just sat there and soaked it in. And those memories were so much more precious to me. Like I remembered it vividly. I could remember the, the temperature. I could remember the sounds. I could remember everything in high def in my brain. And it felt like I almost had to decide, like I can either make a great photo and sacrifice the mental imagery or I can have really good mental imagery and not take a photo. Um, and when I saw something really beautiful, a lot of the times I just would rather enjoy it, enjoy the moment mentally. And then I was able to kind of calm down about grabbing the camera and making sure I capture it and making sure I record it. Um, you know, that I wasn't willing to completely give up the mental side of it um, to access later in exchange for a picture that is like, oh, okay, another fiery sunset. Awesome. You know, like it didn't, when I put it in my portfolio, it's like, okay, there's another. It's like almost putting tally marks on a wall, you know, when you do four and then you cross with five. But <laughs> another sunset, damn. And it's like, I don't know. I think I'd rather have the, mem the memory sometimes. Well, and um, I wonder too, um, if some of, some of that for you is because of the fact that you're uh, taking film. You're, you're, you're making pictures on, you're making pictures on film, which I think, uh, you know, 
like you said, it slows you down, but also like you're not as nimble as a film yeah. photographer. And so it almost kind of defeats the purpose to run around to try to find something because, you know, by the time you do find something, it's going to be too late. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll, I'll try not to pontificate about the virtues of film too much because nothing more annoying than a dumb film hipster with his uh, camera from 19, from 1897 talking about how great film is. So, um, but uh, one thing I do like about film and that kind of the reason I keep shooting it is uh, it, it does force me to, to slow it down a bit, to calm it down, to not just burn through exposures like crazy. Um, and it, it, I don't really have the luxury of being super energetic about it when I'm shooting. And I think that forces me a bit to um, let some shots go and, and not get too upset about it. Um, you know, it's like if, if the clouds start lighting up and it's an epic sunset and my large format camera, which takes, you know, five minutes to set up a shot at best, uh, isn't already set up, then I'm probably going to miss it. And it's just kind of like, eh, that's fine. You know, that's part, part of the, the nature of shooting, shooting film. Um, so that's helped me slow down, but a lot of it, you know, I used to say you can't take a good landscape photo in the middle of the day. Um, and I, I definitely don't believe that anymore, but the going back to the, you know, I don't really take photos that I wouldn't want to hang on my own wall. And since I don't tend to like, uh, super colorful pictures on my walls, uh, that calmed me down a lot in chasing sunsets because oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. They're, they're beautiful and stuff, but I just knew I wasn't really going to want to want to do anything with the picture. So mm-hmm. um, having the mental memory of it was was more valuable to me than creating a photo I wouldn't really do anything with anyway. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of film, why do you think there's been such a resurgence in that particular medium of photography? Uh, I have I have a lot of theories on that, but um, I, I think what's happened with digital is the 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 technology has gotten so good and the the image quality is so good and all the tools and the software and everything is is so incredible but i think people realize that it, once they learn all these tools they they realize it doesn't make good photos like it, it it's it really is the photographer like yeah you get a sharper version of the picture i guess but you know like ansel adams says there's nothing worse than a sharp photo of a fuzzy concept or whatever his exact words are. I forget what the I, exact quote was. But. I think that's it. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's one of my favorite quotes. And I, I feel like um, just from seeing my students uh, progress, you know, you eventually master all the technical stuff with digital, or I shouldn't say master all the technical stuff. You get good enough with it that you're able to create good photos. And then um, I think certain people have a realization of like, yeah, the image quality is better, but the photo isn't really anything more special. It's not, it doesn't mean anything more to me or there's not really any, any more creativity behind it. So I think a lot of photographers were looking for other ways to, um, to spark that creativity and to kind of seek out that, that creativity in them. And one nice thing about film is you can't do as much with the images once it's taken, um, for one, but also when you're taking the photo, you're relying much more on your, um, your skill and your, you know, use of the camera, because you don't have this screen where you can review your photos. So you're, you're kind of having to um, work your brain a little more, not that digital doesn't work your brain, but you're just having to rely on your brain and with no safety net when you're Mm -hmm. shooting film. And I think that helps foster creativity with some people. 
Um, I think it does for me. Uh, cause if I, if I can't find out that the picture didn't come out right until two weeks later, cause I got to get the film developed. Um, I'm going to be a lot more careful when I take the photo, you know, like when I shoot digital for my clients, I, I can get so sloppy. I just, Oh, let's just <laughs> try this. And then you take it and then you look at the screen. No, that didn't turn out. So then you try it again, you, you know, just kind of, you're almost rolling the dice, hoping the picture's going to come out good at some point. Uh-huh. And you just don't feel like you're really, or at least I don't really feel like I'm, uh, exercising my creativity and my skill and I'm not being careful and I'm not being deliberate. And, uh, I think, um, certain people have found, found the same thing. Um, plus there's a complete lack of tangibility in people's lives right now with everything digital. So I think, uh, film feeds a little bit of a tangible urge that we all have. Same reason vinyl got so popular. Yeah, that makes sense. I was, I was thinking about, you know, the, the workflow of film, in that it forces you to slow down and thoughtfully uh, compose and think about what you want to emphasize uh, and communicate through the image. Um, whereas it's easier in digital to think about that stuff after the fact in some ways. And it's interesting, though, that I think some photographers go to the extreme digital manipulation route for the same reasons. Like they don't necessarily find anything that exciting with their you know, the raw file, but if they can composite and stretch and, you know, exposure blend and all of those kinds of things, they, f- they find that they can make something that they think communicates uh, their vision or, or communicates some something. So I think it's yeah. interesting that it's like two different approaches to the same, for the same end. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I'm always hesitant to talk too much because I know I, I start to sound like a real douchebag talking about, you know, a lot, of, a lot of this stuff, like so much of, of what I well, don't worry, you're, you're in good company here. Okay. <laughs> okay good. Cause like, I, I'm the first one to a make fun of film photographers. Cause I'm one of them. And I, I know we're all, like, we're all full of shit. And I, I know all of us are and me trashing digital manipulation and stuff. I know that's, com- that's ridiculous and stupid because it's just another form of creativity. You know, if I, if I'm being honest, if you prefer to do the creativity on the digital end of it, more power to you. It's, it's different than the way I do it. And I'm sure the way you think I do it is ridiculous, just like the way I think you do it is ridiculous. But wherever the creativity is, that's where you should chase it. Ultimately, I always have to come back to this. It's funny. Landscape photographers have a have a habit of, of thinking they're more badass than they are. At least I know <laughs> I did. You know, it's always like trudging yeah, through the tripod over your shoulder. And it's like, I just want to grab people by the lapels and just be like, dude, it's not that serious. We're doing this because there's no bigger problems in life. Like we're doing this because <laughs> it's fun and we don't have to go hunt to find food. Like we can go to the grocery store. We don't have problems anymore. That's why we take pictures. So I try and not take any of this too seriously, including like how you create your photos. And like you said, you know, if you're, if you shoot kind of sloppy and you just get a a decent raw file and then you sit in front of the computer for, you know, four hours blending it and and removing things and changing the sky and doing all that kind of stuff. It's definitely not how I do it, but keep doing it, baby. If that's how you like doing it. Cause the the important thing is you gotta, you gotta have the creative voice that's true to you, even if it it doesn't agree with everyone else. Um, which there's no way it's going to agree with everyone else. That's it's the photography community after all. So, um, you know, it's uh, my approach and the whole film photography community. I, I love the film photography community. I love shooting film. I'm, I'm so glad it's seen a resurgence. Um, but I know some digital guys get uh, 
kind of immediately don't like film shooters because they're expecting the film shooter that's going to come out and be like, yeah, yeah, really, I'm better because I shoot film and I I slow down and, you know, oh, you're doing you're doing Photoshop. Oh, yeah. okay, I'm a photographer shooting large format. But uh, (laughs) we're we're definitely not all like that. I'm 100 percent for people doing it the way they like to do it. That's funny. You know, one of the things you said earlier back when you were teaching and everyone was giving you pats on the back and said your work was incredible and you found yourself really defensive about someone insinuating that your that your work was derivative. Mm-hmm. I found that there are a lot of um, photographers and I found I was myself, I was one of these people back in like 2012 where, you know, you surrounded yourself, not intentionally, but you surrounded yourself with just people that didn't know much about photography and they thought your work was the shit. And you therefore thought your work was the shit. And then you started um, hanging around with photographers that were, have been around a lot longer and maybe uh, have seen a lot more good photography and, can point out things about your work that maybe could improve or, or that, you know, it's, you know, Hey, your work is kind of derivative Um, or, Hey, you do this thing that I don't necessarily think is very good idea, whatever it is. I found that there's kind of this uh, and obviously I'm generalizing, but there's kind of this, uh, I don't know, like this age of photography where there's people that have kind of you know, gotten pretty good enough. They're pretty damn good photographer, but they, um, they're not necessarily super deep in the, uh, with other landscape photographers. And when other landscape photographers who have been around, uh, you know, critique or comment on their work, they get super defensive and, and, you know, call you like the photo police and, you know, they're just get really upset about it. And I'm just curious because I think we've both gone through that process um, and kind of came out the other end of it. And I'm curious, like looking back on that, what would you say to that former version of yourself? <laughs> uh, I'd say calm down, man. It's not that serious. <laughs> 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 it's just, um, it's so easy to take it so seriously and, and to to get so, um, I don't know, personally offended and personally attached to, to everything. And I completely understand that because I'm still that way sometimes, but I was really that way previously. And and how can you not be like you put so much work into learning how to take pictures, you put so much work into getting to the location and framing up the composition and you're doing you're applying your tools as best as you possibly can. And you're you're doing a good job at it. And then someone just comes along and they're like, you know, you could probably do this differently and you get better work or even worse. Some people don't communicate it very nicely. And they're just like, oh, yeah, it looks like looks like this or looks like that. Or you're, you know, you'll get there one day, kid. Or, you know, and people are kind of, <laughs> kind of shitty about it. Then you have a knee jerk reaction of being mean. But um, so I, I really understand the, the defensiveness. But I, I think, you know, if, if you're unwilling to take any of that sort of constructive criticism, you might never grow, but you do really have to look at who's saying it. And you gotta, you gotta be kind of smart about it, nuanced about it. And, you know, if someone tries to critique your work, and you've never seen their portfolio, they don't, they don't put anything online, they don't put anything in the public, then don't listen to them. Because they're, they're coming at it from a sense of, of, uh, you know, insecurity themselves. But if someone that you respect, someone that has a good portfolio, someone who has a little more success than you, and you admire that success, and you hope for the same for yourself, then when you get that knee jerk reaction of like wanting to give them the finger for pointing out that you're doing the same composition over and over again, like just count to 10. 
and think about it. Are they, do they have a point here? And it's hard to be objective with yourself. I think everyone has that problem. Mm-hmm. But I've definitely learned that my knee-jerk reaction is usually the wrong one. Especially, I'm a very insecure person in general, especially with my photography. That's one of the reasons I don't really look at uh, very many people's photography as I get jealous. Um, but when it comes to my photography, my knee-jerk reaction, if someone's critiquing it, is usually to tell them to F off. But I know, I've, I've done this long enough to know that's coming from insecurity. So I need to, to stop, just think about it. Do they have a point? Or... Maybe if they do have a point, maybe I just don't want to follow the advice. Maybe I don't want to do it their way. Um, and that's fine too. But the knee-jerk reaction stuff is um, often not the, the correct reaction. You have so much emotion wrapped up in your photos that it's hard to extract yourself from that uh, unless you give it a little bit of time. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, I see it happen all the time on you know Instagram and Facebook where people will put their work out there. Like Maybe they'll put it in a big group that's full of photographers um, and, not, and non-photographers. And of course, all the non-photographers are just drooling and saying all these nice things about the photo. And then all the photographers are like, dude, you, we know what you did. Like you stretched the mountain in Photoshop to make it look bigger than it is. <laughs> and they point that out. And then the person gets like super offended. And they're like, you're the photo police. And uh, it's just like, yeah. mm, we're just trying to make a point. Like you don't need to st- stretch the mountain to make it look good. Yeah. And if you want to, that's fine. But don't get offended if we point it out. Yeah, or if you are going to get offended, don't post it in a public forum like that. Um, That's a good point. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, if you're one thing I've never done, and I don't know that this is a good thing or bad thing, but I've never uh, requested a critique on any of my photos. Um, and part of that is, you know, there's not many people I'd really want a critique from. Um, right. But also, would it change what I'm doing at all? And the answer is usually no, because the reason I'm taking photos is because I want to do it the way I want to do it. Um, And again, because I'm stubborn, I would take the lack of success over success if it means I get to do it my way. (laughs) (laughs) So I I didn't really ever seek uh, critiques in that sense. Um, And you really have to, I think, before you post pictures on a public forum or seek a critique or, or get offended by a critique, it's good to ask yourself, like, who are you trying to reach with your photos or who are you trying to impress? Like, um, for instance, the architectural stuff I do, my clients love it. Th- that's why they keep coming back to me. I would never post it in an architectural critique forum because I know it's not that high level, high class type of architectural photography. Mm-hmm. It's mostly done for architects and, and architectural digest magazine and stuff like that. You know, they want the sky replaced sometimes, which I hate. The clipping looks bad. It looks terrible. They want super colorful. They want super HDR. I hate the look, but that's what they want. So their critique is the only one that matters in that sense. And if you're posting pictures for the sake of impressing other photographers, then listen to them. Listen to what they have to say. Because if you're trying to get their approval, then you should see what they want. But if you're trying to post pictures to impress non-photographers, listen to their critiques. You know, it, it sounds like the most simple, basic advice, but um, I've never really, it's never really been my goal to impress other photographers per se. Um, right. Luckily, I do now, um, oddly enough, that once I started not wanting to impress other photographers, that's when I kind of started impressing other film photographers. And I'm still always a little baffled by that because I'm not that impressed by my own work. Um, but uh 
you know, I've never really tried to impress other photographers because that's not a, the clientele I'm going after. Um, but also there's, I mean, there's the old photography joke of like, how many photographers does it take to screw in a light bulb? It's a hundred, one to do it, 99 to say how they could have done it better. Like <laughs> that's absolutely true in, in photography that we're, we're all doing it. We all have different tools and we all have different tools that we like. So naturally we're going to look at a photo and think how it could have been done differently because we would have done it differently, but that's a good thing. You know, if we were all doing it exactly the same way, then what's the point of us all doing it? Like we're, we're not trying to be the best impression of each other, or at least that shouldn't be the goal. We're trying to bring something new to the table. And granted, that's nearly impossible these days because everything's been done. But we're trying to bring something of ourself to these pictures. So if, if other people don't like how you did it, fine. Are they paying you? Like if they're, if they're not paying you, then who cares? Do it the way you want to do it. Or if it's someone you respect, maybe you should listen to them. You know, it depends on what your what your goals are. Um, there's a photographer, actually, uh, I wish, uh, Cole Thompson, I think is his name. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, amazing photographer. And I've emailed with him a bit. Really nice guy. But he's a big advocate of uh, photographic celibacy. Yeah. Yeah, which is don't look at any other photographs ever. Um, and I, I do a little bit of that. I generally don't look at a ton of photos. But um, I, I really see the value in it. Because you're keeping your creativity pure and you're not really uh, seeking the approval of other photographers by su subconsciously imitating their work, you know. I think it's kind of an interesting approach. No, I, I, um, I also have been trying to follow that approach. Not like I look, obviously, I look at a lot of photography just because of the nature of my podcast and all that stuff. But when I'm going out to do my own photography for myself, I purposely don't look at other photographers work of those places yeah. um, because I don't want to get, you know, stuck in a preconceived thought of what a good photo looks like from that place. And I, that's really helped me a lot because I'll, I usually can come away with something that I feel like is, is unique to, to my own voice. So, and yeah. that's been really helpful for me to do that, to follow that process. Uh, it's interesting hearing it from, uh, from someone else. Yeah. Cause I, I kind of experienced a similar thing. I, the main reason I, I started implementing photographic celibacy is, is I would get so jealous and so intimidated by someone, someone else's uh, better photos, you know, that it would just put me into a slump where I wouldn't go out and take photos. And like, hmm. um, like this one's always kind of embarrassing. But uh, when I first saw Peter Lick's work, which <laughs> I'm no fan of Peter Lick, I've, I've seen the light on Peter Lick since then. This was many, many years ago, I got to put a big disclaimer there. But like, uh, when I first saw Peter Lick's work, um, I was like, devastated like i was because he was basically doing what i was trying to do which again is copying other good landscape photographers but um you know i was like so intimidated by how good his work is and how successful he was and all this kind of stuff that i just like i felt like throwing in the towel and giving it up um luckily i i, I don't feel that way about peter like at all anymore i i learned that just given my generally low self-esteem and especially my insecurity with with photography in general it, it's really helped me to not look at, at too many people's work because um, it either subliminally uh, gets me to start copying them, uh, even though I'm, I don't think I am, or I just get so jealous or so like bummed out that I didn't come up with that photo first. Um, yeah. I mean, I went through a big, I went through a big phase of that back in, you know, the heyday of 500 PX, I guess that'd be like Oh, yeah. 2011, 2012, 2013, 2014, like that time period where, you know, you'd go to the the popular page every day and it would be like the same 
70 photographers that were always featured and, you know, Mark Adamus and all these huge landscape names. And then I would, and then I would have the same feelings as, as you did, like, oh, I'm never going to be that good. And, or I would try to copy them. I would try to get the same compositions or this, go to the same places and try to copy their photos. And, and, you know, it didn't, it had horrible results in terms of where my work went. And I created some pretty shitty work from 2013 to 2015, I think. Yeah. And, and I also was not very motivated to take photos at that time either because of that, because I was like, oh, I'll never be that good and then i and then i made i had some kind of realization like in 2016 that most of those photos weren't real experiences like you started seeing videos of how they processed them and it was all just composite work and actually that for me was kind of helpful because i was like oh those it's not that they found themselves in the right place at the right time all the time they've just figured out a way to make their look make their work look really 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 good when maybe it's it has nothing to do with the places they go to or the their techniques of being a photographer yeah yeah they're not really yeah again kind of going back to the there's no personal voice in it they're just doing like the best quality version of that thing that's been done a million times yeah Um, and they're using you know the same techniques that they learned on someone else's video and you know replicating those same exact looks and feels and applying those techniques lightroom presets and all that yeah exactly and um once once i realized that it was actually really helpful for me to kind of take a step back and say well i don't I don't need my photos to look like theirs, you know? That's cool. That's um, that's a good feeling to get to. Um, it took me a real long time to get to something resembling that. But um, it, so you, f- you feel your work's gotten more true to you since then, do you think? I think for sure it's gotten, I mean, I think I come away with more images that I think are more unique and personal and that I like more. But I also think I come away with a lot fewer images that are good, which is fine. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely agree with that. Um, yeah. I, t- I take so few pictures now compared to what I used to do. Part of that's that I'm shooting film now. You know, you just don't, don't take as many. But a lot of it is, uh, and I've, I've told a lot of my students this, is that I don't really take photos of anything unless it, it really speaks to me. Like it, it's, it has to be the kind of photo where I'm thinking about it at night you know, how I'm going to do it. And it's like, I can't get it out of my brain. Like I have to do it as kind of the only photos I really take much anymore. And that's great. That means I'm really connected to every, just about every photo I take. But it also means I'm not going to take that many photos because how many things do you really come across that are going to give you that kind of deep, deep feeling, you know? Um, Like I love shooting uh, buildings and um, especially old buildings and uh, like dawn and dusk scenes. And um, I just don't come across very many that that sparks that feeling in me. Mm -hmm. But when it does, I know it right away. It is unmistakable. And there's no way I can go through life now without executing that photo. Like it's almost like um, a virus. I'm bad (laughs) choice of words right now, but um, it's like it's this worm that gets in my brain as soon as my eyes see it. And I can't get that worm out of my brain in any other way other than making that photo happen in real life. And it sounds kind of pretentious and stupid and all that kind of stuff. But it's, um, you know, it's really like scratching an itch that uh, there's really no other way to scratch it. 
And it gives such a tight connection to the photo and the subject, but it just doesn't happen very often. There's not that mm-hmm. many things that are going to, are going to make me feel that way. Um, and I think that's fine. You know, I think not taking as many photos is, is fine, but, uh, they just got to be photos that matter. Or the photos that excite you. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I like, I like your three rules. A lot of times that second rule, just cause it was fun, you know, that yeah. I like that a lot because, you know, it's, probably a photo that's not going to be shared anywhere. Like it's just something you wanted to take a picture of because it was cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I have a perfect scenario where I just implemented rule number two the entire time. Uh, I went backpacking through the Ansel Adams wilderness a few years ago. And, um, you know, I normally shoot film and big heavy cameras and all this kind of stuff. So I wasn't going to bring that. Um, but I, I made a conscious decision beforehand that I'm going old school. I'm going full Galen Rowell on this, on this bitch. I'm bringing my wide angle lens, I'm bringing my split NDs and I'm going to do like minimal processing. I'm just going to shoot Galen Rowell style. And, uh, I knew I don't like those pictures really anymore. I don't do anything with them. They don't go in my portfolio. They don't go on my wall, but I went out with the intention of taking pictures like that because it would be fun. Like that's what Galen Rowell did. He was a mountaineer. He was a backpacker. Um, and I was kind of like, you know, playing pretend for, a few nights and it was fun, man. It was a blasty blast. I, I like I had a, a great time taking the pictures and I liked the pictures afterwards, but I don't even know where they are now. Like they, they got lost somewhere in the, the hard drive and I, I'm fine with that. I, I don't really miss them and I, I didn't really do anything with them, but you know, going out for the fun of taking photos, that's really important because if we start taking ourselves too seriously with this stuff and try and make everything meaningful, um, it's going to lose the fun factor pretty quick. Yeah, absolutely. Well, tell us a little bit about uh, your online courses and your YouTube channel. Sure. Yeah, I have um, been online courses going for a little while, but the, the most recent one I did was um, a metering course uh, for film photography. So uh, in my YouTube videos, people would see me using my light meter and ask me what my process was. So I, I would eventually say, I'll do a course on it one day. And then uh, I released that last year. Um, it's been doing really well and that covers for anyone who's interested in shooting film. It covers like just about everything you need to know for exposing film, bracketing, reciprocity, failure, pushing, pulling film, all that kind of stuff. So, um, that's yeah, I, was, I was watching one of your videos and you were taking a picture of a cactus uh, with a panoramic film Yeah, and, uh, using your light meter. And it was interesting cause it was, it was, you almost overexposed the sky, but didn't quite get there. <laughs> it was kind of cool though. Yeah, the, the the metering technique I teach is, is pretty fun because you get a very clear idea of how the picture is going to come out, you know, before you even click the shutter. And I'm a, I'm a stickler for getting the exposure just right when the pictures cost, you know, $4 a picture. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> so, <laughs> but yeah, and then the YouTube stuff's been been fun. Uh, just do uh, on-location videos out there. It's been a little tough to do with the, the shutdown and everything. But um, yeah, the, the YouTube stuff's been and fun man it's such a cool community that that watches this the videos and comments on it there's a lot of as i'm amazed at how many people out there actually care to watch it in the first place but also um how many people are kind of into the same thing i'm into i didn't i didn't even even didn't even realize it's the beauty of youtube and social media i guess yeah what's your um i mean are you just doing the youtube thing for fun or is there a goal behind that uh, I do it mostly for fun, but, uh-huh. um, it helps. I, I guess you could think of it as just kind of brand awareness. I hate to refer to myself as a brand ridiculous, but, um, just, you know, kind of get my name out there. So if people, uh, 
uh, want to do a course or something, they might think to come to me. But the main sure. thing is on location videos, I'm actually, um, uh, they're, they're so much freaking work. And I, every time I do one, I'm like, why do I do these? There's so much, <laughs> and I get, I get like zero return on it. Basically the advertising is, is pitiful on YouTube. Like people would be amazed at how little money you make off of YouTube ads. So I do those mostly for fun. And, uh, some people, uh, make donation, you know, contributions, which is great. But even with that, they're way more work than uh, a sane person would put into them. Yeah. What's your, um, what is your kind of general process for that? Are you like, what are you using to do the, the, the video? And then one of the things I think I would struggle with is being distracted from actually taking, making the photograph. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm i I'm pretty amateur on it. Uh, I don't do drone shots and slider shots and sweeping, you know, uh, epic slow-mo shots or any of that kind of stuff. I, I keep the, the visuals as basic as possible, largely for that reason. Because if I start, dude, if I'm out there with a drone and a slider and all this kind of stuff, then I'm just making a video. I'm not taking pictures anymore. Like that's too much for my brain to handle. So yeah, you, you would almost have to give up the the photos. Part of it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> then it'd just be a video of me uh, driving out to the desert, setting up a tripod and not taking a photo. Um, <laughs> it should be real fun for everybody. But uh, yeah, I literally, I, I, I rely pretty heavily on the editing. Um, I spend a lot of time fine tuning the editing because, uh, well, no, nothing drives me nuts more than a YouTube video where it starts off with, Hey guys, uh, thought, you know, you were asking about this topic. So I thought I'd, uh, make a video for you. And, uh, so now I'm making a video for you. It's like, let's tighten it up, man. You got to get, get in the editing bay and clip some stuff out. So I, I, uh, I try and rely on getting rid of all the the stuff that isn't really helping the story or contributing to the story. And the, the editing part of it takes a long time. When I'm out shooting, uh, doing the videos, I try and not let the video um, become more important than the photos. So if I feel like I'm missing things and, uh, you know, screwing things up, I might just rely on B-roll shots of, you know, me setting up the camera and not really talk too much to the video camera and things like that. So the little things I try and make it not too intrusive, but, um, they're ultimately quite a bit of work. Yeah. What are you, what are you using to do the video? Yeah, I use a, I use a camcorder okay. because I use this, I use a Canon XA20, which is like, uh, it's a camcorder. It's the kind you hold, you know, you put your hand in the, the strap on the side and you hold it up to your eye. And you know, like the, I say like, like a dad uses to film his kids at Disneyland. Back in <laughs> like, that's what I'm using. Uh, but it's, it's HD. It's a great camera. I, I like it a lot. Uh, I was using a DSLR at one point to film my YouTube videos. And I was like this close to smashing my camera every time I would go to use it. Cause, uh, you know, like the, the battery would die so quick for one, the, the video automatically stops at 29 minutes, 29 seconds or whatever it is. Um, getting the audio dialed in and everything was just kind of a pain in the ass. And then um, my brother, who's a professional videographer, who incidentally also made the music for my videos. He's an amazing. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, but uh, he's a professional videographer. And he told me, he's like, you're doing run and gun stuff. You need like a video camera because there's a lot of features on a video camera that um, are really useful for what I do. Like, um, you know, like with the DSLR videos and stuff, you get the shallow depth of field, which is great. Looks really cool. Looks really cinematic. But um, when you're trying to focus on yourself in front of the camera while operating a large format camera and running back and forth between the video camera, like you want something that just has a massive depth of field. Uh, 
it'll focus automatically and it'll do it quick and silently and easily. Um, and you want a battery that will last like, you know, three hours and you can just keep rolling. Um, so that's why I got this camcorder and it's made the job a lot easier, but, uh, I know and are I you, are, are you using like a, a gimbal or a selfie stick or like, it's all a tripod or I handhold it. The camera's got a, um, a handle on the top, you know, like how some camcorders have. Yeah. Uh, so if I'm doing a handheld shot, I'll use that and it has real good image stabilization. Okay. Um, Cause again, video cameras have pretty good stuff with that. But, but like I said, dude, my videos, I'm people point out like, uh, you have good production value and I'm like, a, well, no, there's no way I have good production value compared to what a lot of people are doing right now. <laughs> like I don't have gimbal shots. I don't have drone footage. I don't have sliders. I don't have any of that stuff. My stuff is so basic. Um, and it's purely because I would be driving myself insane trying to operate all that different equipment if I was out there. So I try and do it real lightweight, just video camera, tripod, lav mic, and then, um, you know, rely heavily on the editing as kind of a crutch because uh, the visuals definitely aren't as good as like, you know, like what Ben Horn or Thomas Heaton are doing. Like their, their stuff blows mine out of the water in terms of like uh, production quality, visuals and lighting and color grading and all that. Um, their stuff's way way higher quality but uh that's largely because i just don't have enough brain power to operate all that stuff while i'm out there right and it's gosh i mean like i was saying before i i I feel like i would that would just be too distracting for me personally to you basically you're sacrificing the photos yeah i know i've definitely felt that way sometimes i i've done it enough now i think i can uh i can get it done pretty good without without it screwing up the photos but that's a real bummer when you feel like the photo uh, suffered because you're making a video on it. Um, yeah. One of the things I like, I think uh, Ben Horn does this and Thomas Heaton does this too, is, you know, like showing how you set it up and then showing, you know, the finished product afterwards. It's, it's pretty cool just to yeah. see the before and after. Yeah, that's fun, man. I mean, Ben Horn's the reason I started making videos. It's so cool seeing, you know, his whole process and then seeing the finished photo. And that's that's what inspired me to, to try and make similar videos. Um, and, uh, I think that's valuable for people, you know, especially uh, if the photographer's starting out, um, kind of seeing how people take photos and realizing that, you know, maybe you run into the same problems or maybe you make similar mistakes and things like that. And I think that's, that's helpful to people. Um, so I've been, uh, pleasantly surprised at how, how many people have benefited from the videos and say they learned something, even though I didn't think I really uh, showed anything that useful. <laughs> well, so winding down, I'm curious, who would you recommend uh, we try to get here on the podcast? Uh, I would reach out to Carlos Beltran. Um, he's a photojournalist, so not a landscape photographer, but uh, uh, I got to know him because he actually made this little uh, mini doc on YouTube about the resurgence of film called why we still love film oh cool uh, yeah and he interviewed me in that and uh, i got to know him and got great work shoots a lot of film does a lot of square uh six by six format kind of stuff but um he's a uh, uh great photographer in the, the type of photography i always admire which is like street photography and photojournalism because i'm so not good at it and i have such a respect for people who can capture uh you know uh, a human moment without screwing it up and without being self-conscious about it and without uh, feeling like they're invading their space. So I always have a lot of respect for photojournalists and street photographers. So I'll, I'll check him out. Cool. Yeah. That's a whole different ball of wax for sure. <laughs> uh, 
it's like the opposite of landscape photography. Like you're amongst people, you have to capture a very fleeting, short, quick moment, and you have to be completely not self-conscious about uh, having a camera in front of your face, which I am not good at any of those things. <laughs> I don't think many landscape photographers are. <laughs> yeah, it's a certain breed of cat. We, we work alone. We uh, don't right. want too many people looking at us while we're doing our work. Yeah. <laughs> cool man well thanks thanks for uh coming on to the show i really had a great a good time oh yeah me too man thanks a lot uh and hopefully i didn't ramble too much i can go off on tangents quite a bit when it comes to photography all right well thanks so much to nick for joining us for a great conversation on the podcast if you enjoyed our chat, please join us for a bonus episode over on Patreon, where Nick shares his approach to website, portfolio design, and organization, and how that has driven his new approach to doing projects in the field. I personally found it to be an interesting way to go about organizing your work more like a traditional artist would. Well, before we thank our awesome Patreon supporters, I wanted to let you know about some new and exciting things happening over on Nature Photographers Network. NPN is now doing free webinars every two weeks for members, and you can sign up for a free 60-day trial to watch them as well. So far, they have had Cole Thompson, which we talked about here on the podcast today, Alistair Ben, John Barkley, and many others on for these discussions, and they have a lot more big names coming. The webinars are focused on creativity and vision, as with most things over on NPN. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to the show notes to find a link to that free trial. All right. Well, I wanted to take a moment to thank our amazing, incredible, and generous patrons that are supporting the podcast at the $20 or more level over on patreon.com slash fstop and listen. I have linked to each person's website over on my website in the hopes that listeners will support them and their work. Take a look at their websites and please reach out to them. Let them know how much their work means to you. Let's thank them for supporting the show. Without further ado, thanks to Gary Randall, David Kingham, Danny LeFrancois, Jack Curran, Eric Stensland, Jeff Peterson, Charlotte Gibb, Ken Dono, James Bakavoy, Anton Everine, Lori Berenson, William Nurse, Richard Wong, Matthias Joland, Suzanne Mathia, Frank Otto Peterson, Zachary Smith, Michael Rung, John Whitaker, Jason Clardy, Joshua Wallace, Drew Armstrong, Jim Valencourt, Drew Harbaugh, Jennifer King, Andrew Hawkins, and Craig Young. Thank you all so much. All right. Well, here is what's coming next up on the show. Uh, coming up next, we have a recording with John Barkley, which was really, really insightful. A lot of fun recording that one. Uh, I also sat down and chatted with a new up-and-comer, Ethan Deshays. Had fun doing that. I've also recorded with Colorado legend Todd Cottle, and we had a really down-and-dirty conversation about online photo critique and the state of photography. It was a lot of fun. Coming up, we have Manuel Palacios, Margaret Soraya, Joseph Roybal, Felix Inden, Elizabeth Brontano, and William Neal, the legend. All right. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week. <laughs>